Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to The Cosmic Connection. This is your place to explore the order and the beauty of the cosmos and your connection to it all. My name is Amanda Poole-Walsh. I'm the founder of Astrology Hub, and I am here with Rick Merlin-Levine. And today we have a couple very exciting things to talk about before we go into our topic. The first and foremost is that Astrology Foundations Level 2 is now open for early enrollment. So those of you who have been waiting, yay! Those of you who have been waiting for this moment, it is here. You can go to astrologyhub.com slash foundations two. That's the number two, not spelled out. So astrologyhub.com slash foundations two. This is the early enrollment period. So the class actually officially begins on February 12th. But between now and then, you um, will be able to access your bonuses. Rick is going to have a book recommendation for you to order, um, but this is just a recommendation, not a requirement. Um, so more information on that coming. But if you want to just jump in and dive into what we have available for you now, this is a great time to join us. And let's see. Okay. A couple things about that. If you haven't taken level one yet, it is not a prerequisite but it is highly recommended just because even if you have a strong footing in astrology already, it's always great to learn the teacher's actual perspective. So in this, you'll get Rick's perspective and his foundation in order for you to take level two. When you join level two, you get a 10% discount on level one. If you've already taken level one, you get 10% off of a astrology hub course or workshop of equal or lesser value. So either way, you have this 10% bonus to take advantage of. And if you're an inner circle member, you get your 20% discount. And if you're a Patreon member, you also get your 20% discount. Inner circle members, you already received an email about this. And Patreon members, your email is coming soon. So your discount code is coming today, right, Rick? Yes. Yes. All right. Now tell us a little bit about the course. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like um, when you begin to do something like teaching astrology, you realize that there's really no end to it. And so level one was really a smattering of the basic and the basic language. And I think you put it well, um, there are many people out there who have been studying astrology uh, for a long time who really know it, but who have reported that when they took level one, they got a nuance and they got a flavor that helped them kind of reframe what they already knew. Um, and from that standpoint, as you said, level one is not required, but it is helpful because I have some very stylized um, ways of languaging things, and you will not be lost if you don't take level one, um, but, but it can be helpful. But in level two, what we're really going to do is take what we've established in level one and simply take it further in two dimensions. One is deeper and the other is wider. <laughs> and so we're, we're not going to be there because there is no there there. You look back across my room, I probably have three or 400 volumes of astrology books. And I am always amazed when I sit down with a fellow astrologer of how little I know. Now, I know people go, Rick Levine, master astrologer, you've been doing it. It's, it's, it's crap. 
I'm a student. There is no end to it. And those people who have taken one class and go, oh my God, I had no idea. They want, they want their hand to be held and go, oh, it's okay. You know, you'll get it by, you know, just stick with it another month or two and you'll know it all. No, it's not like that. It's, you know, in some ways when you say, how long does it take to do someone's chart? Well, if they're 47 years old, it really would take 47 years to do their chart. Mm. So my point here is that this course, we're going to dig in a little bit deeper in actually making sense of charts. Um, where I wouldn't say that when you're done, you would know how to read a chart and be able to put out a shingle and become a professional astrologer. That's a, a process that has a, a whole thing unto itself. And we will talk about that some in the course, because I know that there'll be people in the course who harbor the idea of perhaps becoming a professional at some point in time. But we will be getting an orientation to the chart itself and where to go with it and the difference between analysis and synthesis, which is really the two pieces of working with a chart. How do I pull apart all the different pieces, all the planets and all the signs, all the aspects, all the houses? I mean, we talked about all that stuff in lesson one, but it's like, okay, so now I know this is in that and that square that, and this is trying that. What do I do with it? <laughs> and so we have analysis, pulling the threads apart, and then synthesis, reweaving the tapestry. <clears throat> and so we will spend some time on the difference between delineation, meaning what are the specific things in the chart, and actually counseling, whether you're doing it professionally or with friends, when you talk with someone about a chart, you're really counseling. And so we will spend uh, um, one module, we'll be digging deeper on the aspects. We did a little bit, an introduction to the aspects, but we'll be digging deeper into how to work with aspects and, and the different types of aspects and, 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 and how to make sense of the language of using aspects. And then we will have an entire module on timing. Last, uh, in lesson one, I'm sorry, in uh, foundations one, we did one lesson that was one quarter of a module on timing. Now we will delve into an entire module on working with transits and, and timing techniques and looking at outer planet cycles and how to synthesize them into our lives. And even what the role of an astrologer is in helping someone or themselves look at their chart through time. Um, and then in the final module, we'll focus on, again, synthesis and pulling it all together. And what do we do when we sit down and when we look at someone's chart? You know, um, you know, what is the approach that we might best take to work with a client? Is it best to tell them about every planet and every sign in every house and every aspect? Or is it more important to find what the most important thread is and have a conversation about that. So we'll look at that. Um, and that's basically it. You know, if, if you liked module one, chances are you'll like module two. It's module one, but deeper and wider. And it's the same format. So it's still gonna be five weeks. The, the couple changes, one of them is we're gonna release the course on Fridays instead of Sunday. So each module, last time we would release on a Sunday, this time we're releasing on a Friday. So you have a weekend to actually work with the content. Uh, I know some, not everybody's working right now and it may not matter, but we want to just give that little extra time. 
on and also Thursday. for our friend and also for our friends in Australia where uh, a, a Sunday release for them really meant Monday. It was Monday, exactly, yes. And so uh, the, the live Q&A portion of it is going to actually be during this time slot. So the five weeks, we will not actually be doing the Cosmic Connection. Instead, we'll be doing the live Q&A, which will allow Rick to really, really focus 100% on the students and answering all the questions. So those are the two- Wait, wait, little- wait, 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 wait a minute. I focused hundred percent last time also. Just oh, like- it's very true. It's very true, but you're, yes, yes. You had a lot on your plate. So we're, we're, we're making yeah. it so that he can do that even more focused. That's very true, Rick. Yeah. Um, so anyways, if you're interested, astrologyhub.com slash foundations two. Okay, and that's the number two. All right, so today we are talking about planetary glyphs, which actually a lot of the level one students were asking about and wanting to go deeper into. What do all the symbols mean? Why are they the way they are? And I was telling Rick before we went live, I'm really excited about this cosmic connection today because anything that I've learned from him so far about the glyphs has made so much sense and it's made those symbols come to life in a new way. And it's revealed another layer of what feels like magic to me in this sim- in this symbology. Um, I'm watching, I, I think I mentioned this last week, I'm watching the Vikings series. And so there's a lot of Catholic symbolism that I'm seeing differently now. I mean, I'm looking at the cross and seeing it as the cross of matter now. And it's just a very, you know, I have 13 years of Catholic school, so it was never that for me before, but now I'm like, that's an astrological symbol right now, right there. So it's, it's exciting to see these symbols come to life in a different way. So Rick, where would you like to start with this? Well, if we're talking about astrological symbols, I think I'd like to talk about the word astrological to start. That would only be logical. I agree. And, um, you know, astro obviously means of the stars, you know, whether it's Latin or Greek, stellar or astro, almost any word that has some variation of those two roots in it have to do with astrology. You know, as we know, the word catastrophic means without stars, astro, catastrophic. Um, the word disaster also means disconnected from stars, you know, disaster without a star, without a star to guide you. Um, and so astro is obviously star, but the logic part is, a, is an interesting thing. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but you mentioned something about your Catholic upbringing. Um, and I know that in Christianity, Um, the word logos has a very important uh, um, meaning, that the word logos actually often is used to to mean the word of God. Um, That, in fact, I think it was um, the, um, the Gospel of John, I believe, that starts in the beginning, there was the word you know, and, you know, the word, and the word was, was God, and God was the word, I probably have just ruined it, but it's pretty close to that. But the word, in Aramaic, you know, the Bible was actually written, and, you know, Jesus spoke Aramaic. In the original Bible, the word was, in the beginning, there was logos, and logos got translated into the word, or the word of God which also kind of also means the truth or that sense of, of truth that one has when one knows one is at one with God, if that's a possibility or, or a thing. That word is also the root, the root of our modern word logic. And the two words in some ways 
have a very important distinction because logic occurs up here. Logic is, you know, if this, then that. Logic has this, this, this step of statements that, that have to do with something that, that, makes, uh, that makes causal sense. The word logos actually had more to do with a word that was spoken with a connection to what was already pre-existent so that when it was spoken, it manifested into reality. Astrologos is the logos of the word that the cosmos is manifesting into reality. So that, you know, that in a way, logos is a synthesis of the metaphysical into the physical. Um, I've said this maybe here before, that if there was one reason that drove my early studies in astrology was I was seeking the answer to one question. And that question is, how does meta become physical? Now, if that were stated more correctly, it was how does the metaphysical become physical? Um, but I like it stated that way. How does meta become physical? Because something exists before the physical. And that somehow, I mean, you, me, Frank, Susie, um, everyone was born of a single cell that began as two separate single cells that somehow manifested into this universe of experience that we call Amanda or Rick you know, or whomever that is a complex interrelationship of, of, of events and, and scenarios and physical substances that we've collected. How does that happen? How does what there was nothing before become there is something now? Are you with me here? Oh, yeah. That's Logos. Logos mm -hmm. is the manifestation of what was pre-existent into what is real by creating a vibration. What is that vibration? It is the word. Until you speak it, it doesn't exist. I mean, that there's a whole science around, you know, metaphysical studies around, around ritual, around witchcraft, around um, manifestation craft, about speaking one's intent. And of course, a lot of this stuff gets very watered down. And we have things like, you know, if you say, you know, I want a Mercedes, you'll get a Mercedes. And that's just silly. I mean, you know, but there is something to the verbalization that has to do with in the beginning, there was the word. It manifests that which was pre-existent only in subtle wave form. What it does is it turns the wave into particle. The universe consists of particle and wave. We've talked about that in many different um, perspectives here. So what does this have to do with the symbols? Everything, because the symbols are encapsulations of the energy that is the archetypes or the energies of the various planets. Alfred Adler, who was a contemporary and student of Sigmund Freud's, he was a psych, one of the early psychoanalysts. I, I think he also was the person who introduced or gave us the concept of, um, of um, introvert extrovert, um, amongst other contributions that, that he brought into the, into the sphere of psychology. But 
Adler was also fascinated with handwriting analysis. And we're not going down that rabbit hole here at all, other than his concept of why handwriting analysis was significant or useful or important was that handwriting, and we're not talking here sitting at a computer punching out letters, we're talking about that old archaic thing of actually moving one's hand back and forth and around in circles as one hand moves along the paper. For those of you younger people here who don't know what I'm talking about, back in the old days, we actually had these dead trees that were flattened that we made marks. Okay. Adler said that handwriting was a frozen record of the vibrations of each and every nervous system. Oh. It, 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 it puts a little different lean on what we normally think of handwriting analysis, because we, we know that we all vibrate differently. Your voice is different than my voice. Everyone's voice is different. And it's not just how it sounds, although, you know, we could pick up the phone and someone can go, Amanda, and you can go, oh, my God, Bob. Sue, is that, I mean, someone you haven't heard in 20 years, there's something about voices that are very distinct because there's, because it's vibration. But again, it's the, the vibration that comes into, into reality. Now with handwriting, handwriting is also very unique. Everyone has their own little nuances. And it turns out that Yes, there is a very scientific specialty, um, graphoanalysis, graph analysis or handwriting analysis um, that actually can look at the, the, the tiny micro motions that we make when our hands are, are converting a thought into something that we leave as a trail. And in a way, the glyphs and even the original alphabets um, we're part of that. We've lost some of that as we've become more mechanized, thank you, Gutenberg, and digitized, thank you, electricity, IBM, I don't know, whatever else. Um, but but there still is this, this going back and looking at origins. So before we actually looked at the glyphs, I wanted to make sure that we had a sense of why we are looking at the glyphs. There's a question from the audience. <laughs> All right. Can we go back to astrological? Because yeah. I'd love to like tie it together. So you say astro is stars. We have catastrophic, which means without stars. We have disaster, which means dis disconnected from stars, which is epic, by the way. I mean, it's just the, the, that alone is already epic to know. Um, and how we can extrapolate from there is amazing. But so we have astro stars and then we have logic, which sometimes is the word of God and, um, tr or truth. Right. But then you're, and then we have logic. So that's another way to look at the word, but then we have the cosmos manifesting into reality or the synthesis of the metaphysical into the physical. So if we were to put astro with logical with any of those definitions of logical, what would it, me, what would it be in English? Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing. See, logos by itself um, is it, it really it comes from a Greek word that means ground. <laughs> you know, it, logos has to have its root in mm. something that's real. 
and mm. the word of God or the, or the principle of divine mm, reason or creative order is basically logos. Now, um, when we talk about astrologos or astrological, many people would just say, well, it's the logic of how this means that. It's the language of, of how things logically connect together. And in a way, it is that. But it's also about the manifestation of um, the invisible to the visible, um, the invisible into the visible through the vibrations that the planets are creating, because the planets, as they move around the, the, the sun and the earth, um, as the planets move through the sky, even though they move very slowly compared to, let's say, a tuning fork, um, or to a, a, a or to Gemini Brett playing the saxophone, those vibrations are high frequency enough that we can hear them with our ears. But the planets are still voices; they're still vibrating. And so, astrologos or astro something that's astrological is basically spoken into existence through the groundedness or the, um, or the pre-existent metaphysicalness of that which the planets are vibrating into being. So something that's astrological certainly has a sense of modern logic or rationality to it because logos is really the rational, the rationality of the word of God coming through the voice of truth. Okay. So we have a very simple, uh, Def definition would be like star logic. Yeah, sure. yeah, right. But but, but, then, but but we have to be careful because logic isn't just a plus b equals c. Right. Okay. There's other definitions of logic. Got it. And then the other one, the kind of like hidden meaning or deeper layer of meaning would be making the invisible visible through the vibration of the stars and the planets. Oh, I like that. Yeah. 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 That was it. You said it at one point. It was like, oh yeah, there there it is. Okay. Thank you. That's that's really important for us to understand. And so you're saying we're making vibration. It, this is the study of making something invisible, visible through the planets and the stars. And so the symbols are also, the glyphs are also encapsulations of those energetic frequencies. That's right. Because ultimately logic or logos is what is spoken. And we normally think of spoken as the spoken word, which it is, but, but part of the magic that we don't, in modern times, we, we forget that part of the magic of putting letters on paper and only priests knew how to read um, and, and, and people who had powers that because they, if, the, if you knew how to read, that meant that you could find the right words that matched the right moment, even if it was outside of your experience. In other words, by taking these different letters and putting them all together, you knew how to spell. <laughs> exactly. So here's the magic of language is really in creating the ability to make a spell. Mm -hmm. Now we think of make a spell as hocus pocus or, or almighty God, please, or um, to the great mother in the sky and to the father. And I mean, these are all forms of spells, but we couldn't do that 
unless we learned it verbally from our ancestors, which is how this was often passed on. But once it was encapsulated in writing and one had the ability to go to a book with hundreds and thousands of spells in them, things that were already spelled correctly, I could go in, decipher them. And so, yeah, so the languaging part is not only the spoken word, it's also written. And then when we get to the written word, we get to the where do these letters come from? And although modern English is a derivation of Latin, which is a derivation of Greek, which is a derivation of Aramaic, which is a derivation of Hebrew and Phoenician and who, you know, but but the more ancient languages Apparently, and there's some brilliant writing on this, uh, Stan Tenen is, a, uh, if you Google him, um, he's developed a lifetime of study to the shapes of the Hebrew letters and how they were actually three-dimensional forms that were flattened onto a piece of paper to make an alphabet, but actually were energetic capturings. Wow. And so... In a way, when we look at the symbols for the planets or and the, the signs, we start off with some very, very simple things. We start off with, and, and this incidentally is sacred geometry. <laughs> then you, I mean, we, we've, we, we did a, a, a talk back a ways on sacred geometry. Um, but, you know, if you draw a circle, that is sacred geometry because a circle represents a cycle. It represents a closed cycle. Where does a circle begin? Where does it end? It doesn't. It keeps going around. And a circle as a symbol represents like an egg in three dimensions, a sphere. It's, it's the seed of potential. So in any astrological symbol where you see a circle, it's representing the potentiality of what could emerge from inside of these cycles or inside of this sphere. By the same token, we're going to just talk about a couple of these right now, and we'll see them more in the planets in a few minutes. But by the same token, and you mentioned this, I, you might have mentioned it uh, before we were online. I'm not sure about the cross. I did um, in the beginning, Yeah. Oh, you did it to be, okay. So, so the idea of the cross, this is another form of sacred geometry because a cross is simply two lines that meet at 90 degrees. And although we don't think much about it, I mean, many people wear crosses or have crosses as symbols of um, their belief in um, or, um, or their adherence to some aspect of Christianity because the cross is a symbol um, of, of that religion or of all those um, variations of those religions. Um, but from a standpoint of sacred geometry, and for those of you who have taken the level one course, you know that in astrology, we have what we call the cardinal points. And the cardinal points um, on a compass are north, south, east, west. <laughs> In fact, any, um, any uh, uh, traveler, um, um, what's the right word? Outdoorsman who follows the, work, follows the compass, who can navigate um, by a compass, um, they'll always want to orient to the cardinal points. Where's east, where's west, where's north, where's south? 
Um, and of course, in the ancient times um, and even more modern times, um, it was very common to use the stars again to orient even to those directions here on, on, on Earth. But in astrology, the cardinal points are also the horizons, the eastern horizon and western horizon, and the highest point in the sky that the sun would reach, and the point beneath that where we can't see it, where the sun would be at its lowest point beneath us. Those points represent the ascendant, the eastern horizon, the descendant, the western horizon, the midheaven, the highest point, uh, or, or the, um, the midheaven, the medium celli, or the lowest point, the imium celli, the icy. And these points to the astrologers are the cardinal points. These cardinal points are also represented by the beginnings of each of the seasons. Aries, spring, um, Cancer, summer, Libra, autumn in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's opposite, and Capricorn, winter. And these points being the cardinal points again, when you connect them, what do they make? The cross. And the word cardinal, we've talked about this here, I think, before also, comes from a, a Latin word, cardo, which means hinge. And the hinge is something that allows movement but doesn't move itself. And so anything that's cardinal is nailed to reality, but also allows the door to open and allows movement. In fact, the cardinals in the Catholic religion were meant to be um, hinge points. They were meant to be things that were stable that you could rely on even when governments, popes, and other things changed, the cardinals held that position because the word cardinal is a hinge. In fact, even Stonehenge is like a cardinal. It, it, it's an opening to something. And in astrology, the cardinal signs are all initiation. They're all opening. All right. So we're spending a little time on this because the cross is such an important symbol, not only in sacred geometry, because things manifest on the 90 degree angle. Um, astrologically, conjunction squares and oppositions are all 90 degrees plus another 90 plus another 90 plus another 90. And the 90 degree angle is the angle of the cross. And that's the whole play of the three-dimensional world is based upon the cross because it gives us the illusion that what we see is real. Ah, but we know better now. And you see, this is something that people miss, that the um, Christian religions are built upon the cross as their basic symbol because it's built upon the what you see and what you get is the real world. The what you see is what you get. That's the real world. And that the invisible metaphysical realms are reserved for the priests and for the divine. Mm. And this is one of the big changes that's going on as we move from the age of Christianity, the age of Pisces, the age of the fish into the age of Aquarius, which we've already talked about here also, which is probably still a hundred years away, but it's a several hundred year graduation ceremony. And we are at the beginning or in the midst of that, even though it may take another you know, century to get there. But the point is, is that, is that we don't have to rely on secondhand gods anymore. That, that, that part of the age of Aquarius and those people who are stepping into the new age 
um, are people who are realizing that they can have a direct apprehension of divinity. And part of the magic of the logos of astrology is it gives us a language, a symbology with which to move from the physical into the metaphysical. But the cross is a symbol that we will see in the symbols of the planets again and again and again, because it's the ground. It's the place from which the logos extends and makes things that are real. I see a question bubbling. Oh, I mean, completely. So this would be north, south, east, west, correct? The right. sign of the cross, north, I, south, I east. I think you just did you not? <laughs> I just did. Uh, I did. And um, I'm asked, like, it, it's actually quite significant now. And it's interesting that it crosses over the heart yes. as, as like the, the center of that cross. Yes. Um, just fascinating to sit with for a sec there. But so- and Incidentally, while we're on the cross, Let's just, and, and we've been doing this language thing, let's just for a quick second talk about the rising sign, setting sign, the, uh, the east versus the west, the right hand versus the left hand. Because Christianity or the entire Judeo-Christian Western tradition has a pretty heavy damn hand, and I'm going to use the word hand in particular here, um, in defining what's okay and what's not okay. And anyone who says, oh, the patriarchy, that's a bunch of bullshit. This, I mean, I just had a, a, an encounter on my YouTube channel of people arguing that this whole thing of the rise of the matriarchy is crazy. Show us an example of this patriarchy. It's never existed. It's all, just watch this. In Latin, the word for right, as in right hand, is dexter. In Latin, the word for left, as in left hand, is sinistra. So if you're left-handed, you're sinister. If you're right-handed, that's cool. But if you have two right hands, that's amazing because you're ambidexter, ambidextrous. So in a, in a way, the left hand, which is connected to the feminine, yin, uh, matriarchal, um, um, uh, feminine side of the brain, if you will, and I don't mean that with yeah, you know, sex organs, I mean that from a kind of a gender perspective. Um, if you're left-handed, that means that you are evil. And in fact, for centuries, I mean, my dad um, was left-handed in his first weeks at school. Um, every time he wrote with his left hand, it was, it was hit with a ruler. You know, you were not allowed to because you had to write with your right hand because that was the, that was the, the, the masculine, that was that, that's dexter. That's to be dexterous means to be able to manipulate things in the real world. Whereas if you're left hand, you're sinister. The word sin, left handed, that's the feminine aspect. So even with the cardinal points, we have a built in bias. But that aside, the cross is a representation of the three dimensional world. One, there's one more symbol I want to introduce before we get into the actual planets themselves, and that is a portion of the cycle. The cycle, remember, a full cycle is, is a circle. That's, that's a circle. But if we take a half of a circle, that becomes only a half of a cycle, and it's also, sacred, it's also a, a form of sacred geometry because the half of a cycle represents almost like a collector. It's, you see, 
Um, Brene Brown says that if you're not vulnerable, you can't experience intimacy. Vulnerability is the opening. Well, a circle is not vulnerable. There's no way to get in or out of the circle. It's self-contained. A half circle, on the other hand, is receptive. And here we have the first, the first clear division in the symbols and the archetypes, the glyphs of the planets, and that is the symbol for the sun and the symbol for the moon. Because the symbol for the sun is a complete circle. And in fact, technically, the symbol for the sun, and we'll look at these in just a few minutes, the symbol for the sun is really a circle with a dot in the middle. When, you, when an astrologer draws a, the symbol for the, the sun, they, they draw a circle with a dot in the middle, which represents the sphere of potentiality with the seed for another sphere inside of it. Because it's always, it's always creating and pro-creating. It's the seed within the, the sphere. And that's the symbol for the sun. And if you look at the Apollonian um, way of looking at the universe, the Aristotelian way, the sun is immutable. You know, when, when, when Galileo looked at the sun and saw sunspots, the church officials forbid anyone to look at this, to look through a telescope. Why? Because if it showed blemishes on the sun, it had to be the work of Satan because the sun was perfect and immutable and could not have blemishes. I, I'm not making this up. I mean, this is, this, this really happened, you know, 500 years ago in the, in the 1400s. Wow. Um, and so, but the point here is that ancients knew, they knew, they believed, which is the same as knowing if it's a hundred percent belief. The ancients knew that the sun was immutable. It was noble. It did not mix with other things. It was self-contained. It was invulnerable. It was relentless. And in fact, the ancient religions that, perceived, that, that preceded Christianity, including the religion Saul Invictus. Saul Invictus was the religion that worshiped the invincible sun, Saul Invictus. And when you go back to the to, to those traditions, and even back to the Egyptian Ra, the sun is, it's a circle. It's immutable. It radiates. It doesn't take in light. It's not affected by what you do or don't do. It's not affected by your birth or your death or your feeling good or your feeling bad. The sun just radiates. Now compare that with the moon, which is a half crescent. The moon receives the light of the sun and reflects it. If the sun went out, there would be no moon. There would be no nothing <laughs> because it's the light of the sun that feeds everything, that radiation, that brilliance. But the moon actually represents the changing ways in which the light of the sun are received and reflected. So the sun becomes masculine, young, <laughs> outgoing, and the moon becomes yin, receptive, indrawing, reflective, contemplative, emotional. The sun is not emotional. The sun just is. But as we receive the sun, depending upon how we feel, we receive the sun's light differently. And so the moon is basically, the symbol of the moon is, is the half crescent. 
and that is that receives energy. So we have two, we have three basic symbols we've looked at. Um, we've looked at the circle, the sun, the half circle, the moon, and the cross, which we will see in almost every planet somewhere. There's also the cross is made up of two lines and the line itself is a form of sacred geometry um, because the line is simply the way you connect two points. You know, a line um, is, is a divider of sorts, because if I draw a line, things fall on this side or that side of the line. Um, but we'll, we'll see that show up, but more so we'll see the, um, the circle, the half circle or the crescent. Um, and and that, that, that crescent is often referred to as the crescent of receptivity. That's the way we would refer to it in, in a symbol the crescent of receptivity, um, the sphere, that's the circle, the sphere of potentiality and the cross of the material universe. Ready to look at some glyphs? Oh yeah, got right. lots, of, lots of notes going. All right, well, I'm going to share my screen. And Rick, you are so funny. I have to tell you all, before we started, I said, Rick, maybe we should just cover like three of the glyphs today, not all of them, because it seems like a lot to cover in an hour. And he goes, I don't even know how I would fill an hour talking about this. So I think we'll be able to get through all of them easily in an hour. And I just want you to know that we've been live for about 45 minutes now. Well, I'm just trying to fill time so that I, <laughs> so that I, could, so that I could say afterwards, Amanda, you're so wise, you were right. <laughs> Thank you. That's so kind. <laughs> For those of you listening on the podcast, this is an episode that you really may want to watch in addition to listening to. So you can watch it on our website. All of our videos are on the website, astrologyhub.com. You can also watch it on YouTube or Facebook. It, it depends on where you're at, but um, he's going to show the actual glyphs and then explain them. So it would be really nice for you to have the visuals unless you just know what the glyphs are. That's another way too. Okay, screen test, what do you see? We see the sun, the symbol and the circle with the dot. Okay, now just as a, a moment of clarification, the symbols that I'm using here in front of me right now are symbols that come from a font that you can actually find online. It's a free font. Um, if you um, Google um, astrology font glyphs, um, you'll find this somewhere and download it. And, and whether you're on a Mac or your PC, um, it's great because they work. But some of them are a bit, they, they have a medieval feel to them. They're not necessarily as modern as the ones that I use. And we'll, at a certain point, we're going to switch over so I can redraw a couple of them, um, even though I'm not at my tablet or my laptop where I can draw directly on the screen. I'll be doing it with a mouse, a bit cumbersome, but that way at least you'll be able to see. So what we are looking at here very simply is the astrological glyph for the sun. Now, most people would write this as a perfect circle with a dot in the middle. Like I said, these, these glyphs are all a little bit stylized, but you can see that, that here we have the sphere of potentiality with that seed um, in the center of it. And this is the universal symbol for the sun. Um, sometimes if I'm drawing it on a piece of paper, I might put rays coming out of it just for fun. 
Um, and, you know, just because the sun is radiating. The next symbol is the moon. And again, these are kind of weighted funny um, compared to how I would write them. Um, but you can still see that what we have here is a half of a circle. Um, and this is actually has one within another to show, you know, kind of the, the solidness, um, you know, of, of the moon itself. But it's showing where the light would come in here from, from, from here. And as the light comes in, um, this then is reflecting or holding the light of the sun and reflecting it. Um, and um, it's interesting that the ancients saw the sun as gold and the moon as silver. And gold has a sheen, a shine, it radiates. And silver actually is reflective. And, and again, we moderners don't get a lot of things the way the ancients did, because to them, to us, a mirror is no big deal. I mean, but to the ancients, a mirror was a breakthrough technology that you could actually melt sand and create it so that it was transparent and then paint melted silver on one side of that glass and it would reflect back. And the moon is silver. The moon reflects the light. Silver reflects the light. And in fact, until digital photography, every, every picture that you've ever seen, whether it was taken on a brownie camera, a Kodak camera, a, a Hollywood movie film camera, all film was um, used silver bromide as the chemical background of the film that actually captured the light contained it and then reflected it later on. So the moon is how we capture the energy of the sun and reflect it. There's a receptivity to the, to the um, half circle that there isn't to the circle. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. I love the Hawaiian word for um, full moon, which is the mahealani, which means one who collects light and shares it with the world. They've seen the moon as like collecting the light and then sharing it. Right. So as we move out to the personal planets, the Mercury, Venus, and Mars, their glyphs are pretty straightforward. We have Mercury and, okay, here, here, here's a test. What sacred geometry pieces is Mercury made up of? You can do this. We have the half circle, the circle, and the cross. Right. So Mercury consists of, and here's the way we would state this, Mercury consists of, this, of, of the um, crescent of receptivity mm. elevated above the sphere of potentiality that is balanced on the cross of materiality. Whoa. Now, when you think about it, this is intellect. <laughs> Again, you know, someone had to, someone had to figure out what, what is intellect? What is a thought? You know, we, we have language that we just take for granted. But what this is saying is that we have to start off with the ground. We have to start off with the cross on the bottom. And again, if I were drawing this, this would look more like a cross rather than some sort of Gothic, you know, representation of a Maltese cross or whatever. 
um, because just because of the difference of thicknesses. But but the cross is this thing starts with the material world, with what is. And then on top of that, we have potential. But I think of this sphere, um, I'm sorry, the crescent over the sphere, I kind of think of this as antenna. And so in a way, this is, um, this is sending and receiving data. What's interesting is that if we take away the crescent of receptivity, what are we left with? Venus. Can you see how we get from Mercury to Venus? Venus is Mercury without the sending and receiving antenna. No words. Venus doesn't get to use the interchange, the interaction. Venus has to be self-contained. It's what do I value? What am I attracted to? What do I like? What don't I like? It's not, let's talk about this and send information back and forth. And when you talk, I'll listen. When I talk, you listen. Um, and, we'll, and we'll take these antenna and we'll take this receptivity that we'll have to each other and we'll put that above what our values are. No, here is just the values. It's the potential. We still are elevating the potential, which has to do with the potential of creativity. We're still elevating that over the material world. Yeah? Wow. <laughs> See, you've done this before. And every single time you will talk about one little symbol. And it's mind-blowing how many layers it opens up of understanding of why these planets represent certain things. So when we go to Mars, we actually, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but you'll see it. Mars is the exact same symbol as Venus, except the cross part of the cross, the horizontal part of the cross has been moved closer to the edge and has been bent back. And of course it's turned, uh, it's turned. But can you see how this part, we still have the sphere of potentiality, just like we did in Venus. Yes. In Mars, we're taking the cross and we're turning it so that the cross is now elevated, except the cross is no longer stable. We're basically bending two sides of that cross back so that now the cross has directionality. But can you see how this is really a, it's the same symbol as the cross. If we extended this line out of the circle through that V, and then we straighten these out, we would still have a cross. So would this be like the sphere of potential's ability to manipulate reality? Yeah, I would say it differently, but I would say that you said it one way. I, I, would, I would say that it's the sphere of potentiality directed. Mm, okay. With motion, there is absolute, Mars has implied motion. Yeah. But the arrow is really a variation on the cross. I mean, you know, topologically, mathematically, it's a cross where the cross part of it's been moved up to the end of one line and then the and then it's been bent back, but it's the same component pieces. For, so for from a sacred geometry perspective, the arrow doesn't have its own meaning separate from the cross. It, it might, but not that I would not that I would attribute to it or not that okay. I know of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that brings us through the, I think, I feel, or I want, I like, and I'm going to go get it. Can you do now, that again, please? <laughs> yeah, um, we'll do it a different way. We send and receive information. 
we'd like to send and receive information, but the only way we can do it is through our creativity of what our values are. And now, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to punch you in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. So now we get to the next two planets, which are going to be a pair. And that is Jupiter and Saturn. And it's not that difficult to see, but Jupiter and Saturn are both made up of the same pieces as one another. What are the pieces, Amanda? The Jupiter, um, Let's just look at Jupiter. Okay, so Jupiter is the crescent of receptivity alongside the cross of matter. All right, now if this were a chart we were looking at, that crescent of receptivity would be in what part of the chart? I don't get, I don't understand that. Well, if this was the cross, let's just yeah. look at the cross. Mm -hmm. If that was the cross and that was in a chart, those were the cardinal points, what point would be the moon? Oh, the ascendant. Absolutely. So what we have for Jupiter is we have the waxing moon rising in the east over the cross of materiality. What does that mean? Prosperity. Ah. Do, do you oh. see? In other words, that crescent of receptivity is the implication here is that it's rising in the east. It's ascending. It's on the ascendant. But it's the crescent of receptivity. And on the ascendant, if it's ascending, it's also growing in light. And so Jupiter is positive. It's good. It's beneficent. It's the greater benefic. It's the sign of the expanding moon rising in the east. And that moon is actually gaining dominance over the material world. Wow. Okay. Can I ask a question about the East? Yeah. I was in Mana Foods, which is a health food store. And I met someone who asked me my name and she, it, she had the same last name. She was also Walsh. And she said, do you know what Walsh means? And I said, no. She said, well, it means from the East. And the Irish thought from the East was from heaven. So Walsh means from heaven. Would you say, you said the East rising prosperity. Would you also say that it's equated to what we think of as heaven or paradise or? I, I would say that the East certainly has that ascension. It has the, the beginning, whereas the um, descendant has the ending. I, I wouldn't disagree with what you said, but I don't know that that vocabulary is specifically tied up in you know, in this ascendant on the chart. Okay. So yeah. we have the crescent of receptivity. This is the, that having dominance or priority or preference over. Gaining. It doesn't have dominance. It's rising. Uh, and so right. this is hope. <laughs> yeah. This is, I feel like the future will be better than the present because, because the moon is a sign of fecundity. It's a blessing. It's an it it it, it it's that maternal caring that that's kind of rising up above the harsh material world. Mm -hmm. You with me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, all we're going to do is turn Jupiter upside down. Now, can you see? I mean, we don't think of them the same because there's slightly different nuances. But can you see how that these two are? geometrically one is the opposite of the other however the moon is facing the other way now 
before the moon was facing outward, but geometrically it's still, and, and, and I don't like this symbol of Saturn, I must say, I, I, and I'll draw one here in a minute that I think is, is a better symbol. But here we have the, um, the uh, crescent here of receptivity, and yet it's the material world that has absolute dominance over it. Hmm. Now I'm going to switch here. And, and I think, as I said earlier, I'm not on a tablet, I'm using a mouse and I, because I have a, a, a device that I do write on and it's not on this computer, you'll have to just kind of go along with my wobbly lines as I'm using a mouse. But I, what I want to do is I would like to just jump for a second to this. And what I want to do is I want to draw the cross of the material world. And here we have the moon rising in the east. And again, sorry for my wobbly lines that don't quite meet or match. Let's see if we can get this a little bit better. Um, but there we have Jupiter where the moon is actually rising in the east. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing about the moon is that the moon actually waxes and wanes. The moon is about change. And so in the modern symbol of Saturn, I look at it more like there's one side of the moon and there's the other. Can you see now how we have two separate moons? Yes. The other symbol that we were just looking at doesn't quite cut it here. I put it back up so you can see the difference because th this is a more of a, a gothic take on, on it. But this is how I would write it. Of course, it wouldn't be quite that wob mouse wobbly. Um, but it looks like a backwards S that's kind of nailed to the T. The T is the cross of the material world. But the moon, which is the crescent of receptivity, here is showing in both of its phases. So this isn't just the good stuff rising in the east. This is the moon going through its tidal um, ebb flow, ebb flow, um, its um, menstrual cycle, um, its emotional um, you know, um, um, uh, birth, growth, death. It's the, it's the inhale, exhale. The, the moon basically is, is about motion. The moon is tied to the seas because the seas are always rising and falling. The tide is always ebbing and flowing. And so what we have here is the letter S backwards really represents the two sides of the moon. But here's the thing to think about. And that is that if we just look at the symbol of Saturn, I'm sorry, if we just look at the symbol of Saturn with only the material universe, the material universe is not animated. There's no life to it. It's, it's stasis. <laughs> it's stuck. It's, it's, it's motionless. And it is actually the addition um, of the um, motion of change that gets put onto that, that makes that become animated. But here's the thing. The tide here in Saturn changing, the feelings changing, are still nailed to the cross, which means that even though our feelings change, the material world stays the same. You know, if, if we're having um, menstrual cycles, I say we, I really mean you. <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is that where we are in the cycle feels familiar, but the material world is basically more static, it doesn't change. 
And so Saturn represents that which changes nailed to that which doesn't change. And this is the stability of Saturn. This is why Saturn in astrology is so important because it represents the material world itself. It's the dominance of the three-dimensional material cross. Remember the word matter is the same word etymologically as matrix. The matrix, the mother, the moon comes out of matter. And so Saturn is the representation of the dominance of matter over the feelings. But the feelings are actually the animating portion of, of, of Saturn. And, and I know that the people who, I think we talked about this in Foundations One, I'm not sure, um, but fascinating that these symbols and the meanings of the planets actually are architectural in the language that we speak and the, and the language that we write. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that if you flipped this around, if you just flipped it around 180 degrees, it would look like this. And what does that look like? S-T. And we go Saturn, stability, stasis, austerity, constriction, restriction, test, stamina, stone, statute, set, first, last, st. St exists before modern language. And st, Saturn, is the limit. And in fact, we use language to describe things that are by using adjectives. Um, you know, you're a nice person, but he's nicer. Well, which one's the absolute of all of them? That person is the nicest. We put a st to get the final, what's called the superlative form of the adjective. Big, bigger, biggest. Happy, happier, happiest. You know, um, a little more, most. You know, worst, best. The st, first, last. That becomes the limiting factor. And so this idea of Saturn actually being the ST in effect, that Saturn, that this symbol actually predated our language and in our language, it never got very far apart. That we QRST, they're right next to each other as if they're next to each other because they were once the same thing, Saturn. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. How does this work in other languages? Did it, it does it equate in other languages or is it just well, an yes, yes, yes and no. I've had people from around the world throw their interesting stories at me in all story. Huh? Story S T. Oh, any anything that has now again, it's not a hundred percent and it is ling it it, it it is in 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 Hindu, for example, in Sanskrit, um, the verb to be is sat. S-A-T. Mm. And there Saturn has a very different sense. And it is much heavier in that sense to be. This particularly works through the Indo-European languages. That's where we're coming from. But whether it's um, English, Spanish, Latin, um, Greek, um, Portuguese, you get to, you know, Finnish and, and, and Hungarian and Icelandic, they're alien languages. And I, if you speak them, I don't mean any offense by that. I don't understand them. I can, I'm, I'm coming at this from an English and or, you know, um, Greco-Roman perspective, um, and it works there. 
and it works for other planets too. Not so obvious, but but you know, even with you know Jupiter, um, just the sound, not the glyph, but even the glyph a little bit. Instead of being in an ST, Jupiter is the the the. See, Saturn is a stop. It's a motion shh, shh, that is a, is, a, is a stop. Jupiter is more about gas <laughs> building and popping, exploding, baby, buoyant, belly. Can you hear the difference in the words? Yes. So our language hums a higher frequency of the logos of the stars. Oh my God. There's way more to this than this. We're not going down here any further, but it, it there is, um, it's one of my theories. You know, it's, it's my theory of the natural evolution of language based upon the rhythm of the planets, but that's enough for that for now. That's Saturn. Can we go back to the glyphs? Of course we can. Rick, I'm just feeling, I know you have a hard stop today, so I just want to make sure that- No, we're good. We're going to get, the last three are easy because they're newer. They're, they don't have the same history. Um, they do a little bit, but they're, the fact that they're newer, we come to Uranus and the symbol for Uranus is, um, is, is very simple. <laughs> I was going to excuse myself. I had a disaster- uh, without stars and my pen actually ran out. I've been taking so many notes. So I had to just lean down and grab something else to write with. Okay. Okay. Go. So, so Uranus, we see a new symbol in it. We see the straight line. So we, in Uranus, we have the material universe that's now elevated over the potential. Mm. However, there's two straight lines on either side that contain it. And so this is in a way the material universe that is elevated over the sphere of potential, but contained within the pillars of good and evil, which is really representative of simply the opposites. And what's Uranus's job? I've said it here many times, Uranus's only job is the instantaneous resolution of irresolvable opposites. So the symbol of Uranus, we have these two pillars the pillars of good and evil, the pillars of yin and yang, of light and dark, of up and down, of heaven and hell, of whatever you want. And they basically now they're holding in the material universe. And it's the, um, and, and it's the um, elevation of this, these limitations over the potential that create the stress and the tension that then Uranus needs to release. I feel like each one of these could be a meditation that we just, we just like, they are. we just stare at these for hours and hours and I, and more I downloads will probably come. You have clearly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the, after Uranus, the next one out, is, this is relatively easy, although this isn't my favorite representation of this. Um, this, we have the sphere of potential. I'm sorry. This, we have the crescent of receptivity elevated over the cross of the material world. However, in most glyphs that I've seen with, um, with Neptune, I'm going to draw it here myself. We see this. Sorry for the wobbly. It's kind of more like that. Now, we still have, we, we still have the, the, the same um, um, uh, um, cross. We still have the same cross, but part of that cross has been extended with that direction of Mars. Where has it been extended? 
upwards. The, Neptune is about the aspiration up into the realms of possibility, up into the heavens. There is a directionality here applied on <laughs> literally um, all parts of Neptune. There's an upward, an ascension. There's the dreams, there's the imagination that pull us out of the realm of the material and into the world of imagination. When we get to Pluto, we have, I, I mean, I look at this, this particular version of it even, I see the phoenix. I mean, the, the, it's almost like I see the wings coming out and the phoenix rising from the ashes. Um, <clears throat> but in fact, if we're just to look at this, this in a way, this is, this is Neptune. Can you see how this is Neptune? The only difference is that we add the potential right there and we just you know, pull the you know, arms up a little bit higher. But with Pluto, we have this, the, the, the seed of potential poised above the material world that is in a posture of receiving from above. So that one's not as clear to me how that translates to our interpretation of Pluto. Well, I, th I think the, 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 the difference between it and Neptune is that the seed of potential that's placed above has to do with the metamorphosis. It has to do with, remember, the sun is the, is, is the, 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 sun is the initial sphere, is the initial, the symbol of the sun is the circle. And so here we have the recreation. Here there's no recreation. It's just the dream. It's the imagination. Mm. It's the aspiration, you know, into those thinner realms of, you know, of metaphysics. Here, though, we have the seed of rebirth. We have the sun <clears throat> that's come back around. In a way, you can think of this as the egg from which the phoenix arises from the ashes of the runes of destruction which yeah. we are seeing culturally around us <laughs> as we speak. Oh, yes. You know, and, and, and let's just for a moment, I know some people will be watching this later on, but let the record reflect that as we are speaking in this moment, the sun is making its once a year annual alignment conjunction with Pluto, which gives us the ability to perhaps dig a little deeper behind the veils of illusion into the realms of the void, the blackness, the black hole, the, the, uh, the, the emptiness, the despair, the chaos, the destruction that really is just temporary because what it does is it clears the way for what? This sphere of potential right here to be the rebirth, the regeneration, and the metamorphosis of what we change into. Oh my gosh, you know. All right, I've unscreen shared, I hope. Yes, and I am not going to recap all of that. But what we will do is one of the intentions for doing this was because the level one students were requesting it, what we're gonna do is add this into the level one course with a study guide that goes along with it that breaks down some of the definitions that you just gave us, because this is brilliant. And I have to say, Rick, understanding these things on a deeper level is helping me personally fall even more in love with astrology than I was before, which is, it's, it's, it's a process. Like it just, I fall more and more in love with astrology. The deeper we go, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I would like to give credit where credit is due mm. because a lot of this, 
um, came to me through a little book that I tore my place apart looking for. I have two copies of it, but I went through every book on those shelves and I have another back room that's also has nearly as many books. I couldn't find a copy of the damn thing because I wanted to be able to hold it up. The name of the book is Astrology and it's by Ron Davison. You can find it on Amazon. It's been out of print for years. You'd probably pay a few hundred bucks bucks for a paperback copy of it, unfortunately. Wow. Um, but it, Ron Davison was the president of the Astrological Lodge in London, I think maybe maybe in the 50s um, uh, into the early 60s, somewhere in there. My years may be off a little bit. It's a very amazing little book. And he kind of goes through these in a couple of pages. Um, and I've, I, I read that, I'm guessing, 40 years ago. And I've not reread it probably in 20 years but I've used the material again and again and added to it and added my own observations and so on. Um, but if I didn't mention Ron Davison, it would have been intellectual dishonesty because a lot of what I learned about the glyphs and their inherent meanings originally came from him. Thank you, Ron Davison. Thank you. Uh, brilliant. All right. Thank you so much, Rick. I know you need to go. This has been so illuminating and it just makes these symbols when we look at the chart just pop with new life. And, and I really do think it would be fun for all of us to just look at them and see what additional insights come with this foundation. So let's do the signs next week, if you'd like. Yes, very fun. We'll do the okay. signs next week. Okay. And for any of you who love this, you love Rick's teaching style, you want to know more. I mean, this is now going to be a bonus segment of, of, of uh, level one. Like this is the level of detail, this is the level of insight, this is the level of really working with astrology that we do in level one and that we're going to be doing in level two. So if you love this, I highly encourage you to check out the Astrology Foundations level two. If you haven't taken level one yet, you do get the 10% discount when you join level two. So um, we'd love to have you. It's astrologyhub.com slash foundations two. Rick, I took so many notes today that my pen ran out. Amazing. <laughs> all right, everybody. Rick, thank you so much for being here, for sharing all this wisdom with us here today. You are amazing. And thanks to all of you for being here, for being a part of our community, for tuning into this episode, and as always, for making astrology a part of your life. We'll catch you on the next episode.